Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2 of Backport Stories, and this is episode number 7 of Season 2, and the great news today is Scotty's back! Hello! That's right, <laughs> Scott is back with us. You heard us last week hoping and praying, and uh, now we are, our prayers have uh, been answered. It worked. Scott is back. <laughs> uh, a long round of COVID. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and we also have a special guest today. We have Joe Roslin, who is a great friend of the Salt Box, for those of you who know about the Salt Box. And Joe is a musician, and he's part of a group called Dogs Like Us. And Joe, very quickly, now that we've introduced you, how did you, your group get the name Dogs Like Us? Uh, well, a long time ago, actually, we, I've evolved out of that band presently. But anyway, we were actually up in um, Mike Wilson's barn jamming. Oh, Mike. And yeah. there was a lot of dogs around there. And um, <clears throat> one of the, we didn't have, there really wasn't a band. We just jammed all the time. And someone said, what's the name of your band? And they would, when we said we had no band, and we just looked around, and said, well, dogs like us, so that's really how the name <laughs> came. Oh, I get it. just hanging out with us, and yeah. Or it could be dogs like us, or dogs like us, or dogs like us. I, so, <laughs> we put the emphasis on the word, yeah. It's not, it's not self-referential, like we're like dogs. And, <laughs> Correct. I see. However you want to interpret it. Good, yeah, that's great. But now I'm currently in a band called Linda and the Love Tones. So oh, my. Yes. Wow. Sounds romantic. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's pop. We have a CD out and making another one now. Oh, that's great. Good. Good. We'll wow. plug that. We'll plug Linda that. and the Love Tones. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a podcast, as many of you know, that follows the book Chuck wrote called Backport Stories, where we kind of plumb the depths of his childhood and how the world used to be back in the 1950s and 60s. Some things terrific, some things not so terrific, some things very funny, and uh, sometimes a little bit heartbreaking. But we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about... To sight in a rifle. To sight in a rifle. Because we've entered into hunting season now. Okay, well then with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So this is to sight in a rifle. Come hunting season, Walt oiled up his bolt-action shotgun. He leaned it against the open gun cabinet in the corner of the living room. Walt was a hunter. He longed for an upstate fly-in trip, like the kind he used to read about in his hunting magazines. Year-round, he received American Rifleman, Field and Stream, and Fur Fish and Game. These were the magazines in which he read about these valuable tips on hunting lore, news about gun regulations, and maybe even that hopeful one-day wilderness fly-in trip. Mostly, Walt's hunting grounds were the Torn Valley, which amounted to a few hundred acres that ran along the southern border of Harriman State Park. This property belonged to the Ramapo Land Company, which was heir to the Pearson Ironworks that had incorporated back in 1798. The land company maintained a strong, old-world patriarchal relationship over its dwindling acreage. This extended to hunting rights for a select few, something of a gentleman's agreement, which included John Stead's sons, Walt and Duchy. So Walt tramped around this large tract of privately held land in the Ramapo for a good many years. He had become well-versed in the deer paths and habitat. A fly-in trip to a remote Adirondack refuge would no doubt offer less opportunity than his well-studied private refuge in the Torn. But it was the adventure of being gone from home for days that appealed to him. Walt was quiet and undemanding sort of man, whose dreams were meager at best. Perhaps he would never get that fly-in trip. He sat in his living room, his gun freshly wiped down in banana oil, his pipe lit, and his thoughts floating away to some imagined hunting ground. 
The phone rang. Tessie got it. It was for Walt. She called to him and then returned to her kitchen project. She had launched into a marathon of apple pie events. The kitchen was loaded down with a sweet odor of peeled apples mixed with the smoky sting of Chesterfield Kings. Tessie returned to her cigarette and her next attempt at peeling a Macintosh in one continuous draw of the paring knife. This she failed at as her attention was occupied with Walt's phone conversation. Oh, eavesdropping on Walt was infuriated, as his end of the dialogue often comprised no more than a few monosyllables. Yep. Nope. Oh. Yep. Nope. Oh. And so forth. When he hung up, she heard him amble back into the living room. She called to him. There was no answer. She called again. Still no answer. She put down the knife and she went to the front of the house. Walt was checking over his twenty-two semi-automatic revolver. She looked at him. Who was that? That was Jeff Masters. He wants to sight in a couple of rifles. Thought I might like to come along and try out my pistol. Ugh. Well, why don't you take Chucky? Why don't I? And so we drove up Southfields along Route 17, through the pass in the mountains. With the windows up, the old GMC was thin on breathable air. The combined fumes of turpentine, oil paint, spackle dust, and pipe tobacco offered up a, a sort of sweet, dry toxicity that burned at my nostrils. I stared out at the passing houses clustered along the highway. Their front yards amounted to something less than five feet of dirt from the road to the front door of the house. Between these houses, there were narrow driveways that were clogged with Ford and Chevy pickups, some of them stacked with heaps of split wood. Beyond these houses, the hills rolled back to miles of forested land, and I wondered why folks would live so close to the road when there were all those woods behind them. On the truck floor beneath my feet, housed in its leather holster, a pistol waited. I looked at Walt. The man was quiet. He was focused on the road. This man said very little. He was different from his brother, my Uncle Mal. One of them talked, one of them didn't. I looked at his hands on the steering wheel, red and gnarled, the hands of a working man. One index finger was knobbed at the first knuckle. This was caused by an unintended break while playing baseball for a factory team long ago. Walt called it his baseball finger. It meant that he couldn't fit it through the ring of a coffee cup and had to clutch the cup full around instead. I looked at my own hands. They were white and smooth. I wondered if one day... They, too, would be a collection of knobs and scars. When we pulled up to Jeff Master's house, again I saw the homes were stacked in along a little dirt road with woods that rolled out behind them, an inviting drop of fire-colored leaves and dark twisting trunks of fall. Jeff, a long-legged, lean woodsman, dressed in a checkered shirt with a woolen hunting vest hung from his frame, he stepped out from the little low-roofed building. He carried with him Two lever-action saddle rifles, a Savage and a Winchester. The guns and a box of cartridges were laid out on the folded drop sheet in the back of the truck. Jeff then took the passenger seat, and I hunkered down between the two men. As we drove up an angular road, a wood road, they call it, they talked about guns and hunting and such in that slow and easy dialogue that I had come to recognize as woodsman talk. Walt killed the engine just short of an old quarry hole. It was really more of a great bite in the side of a hill than a hole in the ground. 
Sand had been extracted from here for use in concrete mix. The sandbanks at the north end made a fine dead stop for target shooting. Jeff walked to the far end and tacked up some crosshair white cards on a weathered slice of plywood that was nailed against a fire-charred elm log. I sat on the ground. Walt loaded up the revolver. Jeff's chestnut-colored hair stood away from the top of his head in a slight wave across his skull. It was very different than Walt's hair, which was thin and mostly black and cut close to his scalp. Jeff Masters dropped to his left knee. He swung the Winchester up to his right cheek. He eyeballed the long black line of the barrel down to the crosshair some twenty yards out. Walt slipped his handgun back into the holster and placed it on an upturned two-gallon drum. He then dug into his coat for the pipe and the tobacco. Jeff pulled up the other bucket and settled on it. His legs splayed out as far as his heels could reach. Walt, you figure you know what the hell is going on today. Walt shrugged. No, I don't know much, much of anything. Walt looked down at his rifle, and then Jeff looked at Walt. Jeff was a good 15 years younger than most of the men he spent time with. Jeff was a hunter, a trapper, a poacher, and a man who had earned the admiration of his elders. But he was also a man who felt out of touch with his time. Mal used to call him, well, he used to say he was Daniel Boone. That's what Mal said, and this pleased Jeff. But by the same token, it set him adrift in dealing with the world that was around him. Bullshit, Walt. You're about as fine a man as I know. For all that talking that Mal does, there's plenty going on behind that pipe of yours. You lived through meaner times than I have, and them times are still inside you. I know it. I know it. Now, what do you make of this civil rights business? Hell, slavery been outlawed since Lincoln's day, right? But still, we stick it to the poor bastards, don't we? Now, now, now they're pushing for equal rights, and you know that's got to be fair, but there's going to be lynching around that. I can't truck with that stuff. But, Walt, I got fellows, friends of mine, we bend elbows together down at Razum's bar, and... They talk like clanners these days. Walt lit his pipe. He said nothing. Jeff looked back down at the targets. I stared at the pistol in the holster. And then there's this damn Cuban stuff. You, you know the way things is going? We could find ourselves in a war with Russia over that. And if it comes down to a war, that kind of war, atom bombs and all, well, then there ain't much worth fighting for after that's done. Walt puffed away quietly. Jeff shook his head. I shifted my legs beneath me. One of them was falling asleep. Sometimes, Jeff said. Sometimes. Sometimes I, I figure I'm just going to one day, I'm going to pack it in and I'm going to go north. I'm going to keep going until there ain't no more places to go to. That how you feel, Walt? Walt took the pipe from his mouth. Let's shoot. Jeff smiled. He picked up the rifle and then he looked at me. Hey, Walt, give the boy the first shot. Walt picked up the holster. Carefully drew the twenty-two out. He instructed me as to how to hold on to it. He had me kneel. He had me place my elbows against the bucket for a steady aim. I wrapped my hands around the smooth, cool, plastic grip of the gun. I slid my finger through the trigger guard. I leaned into my elbow so as to look down the short barrel at the distant target. Walt said, Use one eye to focus. Look at the target. Hold your breath. Then let it go. Exhale. And when you do that, squeeze the trigger. I did so. The gun offered a slight recoil. That startled me. Jeff pulled a sighting scope from his vest pocket 
and he focused on the target. Did you hit it, boy? I gave the gun back to Walt. The burnt smell of powder hung in the air. Jeff ambled down to the far end of the pit. We stood waiting for him to return. He walked back with the target card in his hand. He smiled and he handed the card to Walt. Nailed the crosshairs, Walt. The boy is a crack shot. Walt smiled at the hole in the center of the card and he said, Well, I'll be damned. How about that? Then I shot just like that. First time ever. <laughs> Boom! With a pistol, no less. Oh, yeah. Wow. Man, oh, man. Don't tell me how the second shot went. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So how did that feel? I mean, you know, you must have... I mean, the first shot... Is that the first time you ever... Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I think they got more out of it than I did. Mm. I, I think I, I didn't quite realize the significance, I think. Yeah. You don't go hunting much do you no 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 not anymore i still have guns i still i inherited walt's guns and i have them stowed away safe you know sure sure. and i have gone to target practice you know sometimes i still i'm good at it yeah for what it's worth yeah (laughs) and walt taught you step by step how to hold the gun oh yeah yeah the key is to be relaxed Mm -hmm. because when you're not relaxed you, you you do other movements Right, you, know, you don't breathe right, or something. This is breathing and being. He's right. He's completely right about that. Yeah, See, it's that, almost like a meditation, really. Yeah, there's breath involved. There's holding breath. There's uh, a, a cycle of what you're doing. Yep, it is like a meditation. Yeah, I've never hunted. Joe, have you ever? Uh, have you ever hunted? I, I've never really hunted. When I was a kid uh, in my second grade, family took us up to a uh, hunting lodge with a bunch of you know cousins and. We thought who we were, we were walking around with BB guns, shooting them in holes. But I did shoot a twenty two rifle. That was the first time I ever shot a twenty two rifle. But no, I've never hunted, to answer your original question. <laughs> yeah. Fish, but not hunt. I haven't either. But, see, this really speaks to the the dichotomy between, you know, some of the terrible stories we hear today on the radio and real hunters who know how to handle guns, handle them very carefully, do everything according to the code, and even when they store them, store them properly. And that's why, you know, I think we miss the point when we rail against the fact that we have 400 and, I think 410 million guns in a country with 330 million people. We're not saying that, uh, you know, to the hunters, to the people who do this for sport properly and effectively, we're not saying that there's anything wrong with that. And, and we're, not, we're not really attacking that. What we're going after is the misuse of guns, the fact that you have to take a driver's test to drive a car you have to get a license to fish why then do we not have more stringent regulation around learning how to use a gun handle a gun store a gun things like well, that? well it's it's become political um the nra i was a member of the nra uh, when i was a kid the nra used to be a, a an educational institution and and it used to be all about safety and care and um and it's it's funding the funding that it had always went into just that, into into having an understanding of what this means and what the responsibility is, and it's an awesome responsibility because this is a, a real weapon; it can take life. And sometime in the early 1980s, the NRA became a a political advocacy group, and you know that was the beginning of a, a very bad time. I know folks who today would say, "Well, the NRA is just a bunch of fascists." 
That's not the case. Uh, but there's not another alternate organization that hunters, that people, rural people who still forage and hunt and, and you know, are meat hunters and, and those folks, there's not another national organization. The NRA has become the, the staple that they fall back on. And that's unfortunate because it's a, it's become a corrupt organization and, yeah. and it's corrupted by politics and, and it, it shouldn't have gone down that road, but it did, you know, it went down that road and, and now you can see with, with uh, in particular New York State, they, they are passing uh, or trying to keep on the books a whole slew of new laws that may or may not be effective in dealing with the problems. But one of the things is that there's a new mandate for an expanded educational process, which I think is terrific. I think it's a 10-hour course or something before mm-hmm. you can get a pistol mm-hmm. license. That's what you need. And that's... The, the least of it, right? I mean, to drive mm-hmm. a car, like you say, I think you need 50 hours on the road with a, a licensed driver and a, a course and all these other things. To give these educational courses, it's one thing to legislate that we all need that if we're going to go that route. But now who's going to teach it? Mm-hmm. And the first instinct is, well, you go to the NRA because for however many years, almost 100 by now, like you say, this is what they did. But now they're a political organization. So the state, I don't think, wants to associate with a political organization to get this done. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a huge uh, need for people who are not affiliated with NRA to train new shooters. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to clean up NRA's act because they have been so unscrupulous about their hierarchy that they've made themselves rich. Mm -hmm. And they've made themselves rich off the backs of real hunters and people who are really careful about this thing and, and want to preserve their rights mm-hmm. and it's it's disgusting it's you know it's it's like i say from the 80s on walt was a, a lifer in the nra and yeah. and yeah. that was important to him and he got like he didn't have to pay membership you know he was a lifer he was always in it and and uh when when the nra was campaigning against the brady bill after reagan got shot walt took a, a strong position in support of the brady bill and actually cut up his NRA card. It was yeah. plastic em- embossed card, kind of a sealed card, and he cut it all up and he mailed it back to them as a protest. That's Walt, of all people. Yeah, yeah. But um, And he advocated for his friends to do the same. I, I think that was the tipping point. I really yeah. do. Yeah. I mean, when Reagan was, was shot and, uh, you know, the NRA, which could have at that time taken a responsible stand it was a great opportunity for them to do the right thing sure as right it there. used to be yep. as it, it, it was once a very legitimate organization they could have easily taken an appropriate stance at that time but that's when i think they decided to tell the world we're going to rail against any legislation whatsoever forever yep. because the only thing that matters is selling more guns and as we know after one of these terrible incidents uh gun sales go through the roof in the months following uh and i think that's what they're you know what they're aiming for you've got the uh the ar-15 there's there's no reason nobody, on god's nobody earth nobody goes hunting with an ar-15 yeah it's ridiculous that's, that's just it's nonsensical and and our police uh, uh unions are our, our security people in the country are absolutely for putting that in check and then they get attacked by NRA people as being subversive. They, the, 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 the folks in blue, 
get mm-hmm. criticized right. for trying to suppress our rights. They're, they're trying to keep us alive. Sure, sure, of course they are. And, and they're in the front line. They're the targets for the, for the guys with the uh, AR-15s who want to take pot shots at them. Yeah. I like the way your father dealt with it one time when a young fellow, I think, came with you guys hunting and wanted to show him his new, you know, automatic. Yeah, he had, a, he had an Uzi. He yeah. had an Israeli machine gun, that, that fellow. And your dad said, I think he was almost, he was dismissive of it. Like, yeah. What do you have that out here for? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He wouldn't shoot it. He, he said it's, it's inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's the difference right there. And that guy was the guy in this story. That was Jeff Masters. It was the same fellow. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, really. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you see, and then the other thing, too, is, as you say, politics. Politics tends to poison everything when it comes to, because it's, it's so, the, the purpose of a political party is to raise funds and get people elected, and they'll do that any way that they can these days. So when they started to connect and align themselves with the NRA, you could just tell, well, it, this is going to become a corrupted organization. Yeah, slippery yeah. slope. Yeah. yeah. We lost it. Right there. But the problem is really very complicated because if you look at the statistics, there are more deaths with handguns than there are AR-15s. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a, a huge problem because as we have laws per state, we could do whatever we want in New York. It doesn't prevent people from bringing things from Pennsylvania or Ohio over the border, and we still have the problem. Yeah. Well, open carry laws and things like that and the what the Supreme Court has done lately in protecting... Uh, some of these things and allowing people to, you know, right now we're, we're trying not to have people carry guns into Times Square. Right. Couldn't you right. believe this is a problem? I mean, yeah. come on, folks. Well, we're like a hunt in Times Square. Yeah. You know, what's going on? You know, what's Canada good? is an interesting analogy here because Canada have, they have guns. They don't have this same problem. There's just a different mindset down here in the lower 48. And uh, it's always worth looking going across the border and looking at how, how they cope with this. They, yeah. they have crime, they have issues, but it's not the same level of intensity. And um, it's, it's a fascinating thing, you know. I, I love this country, but uh, this is a big, a big wound that we keep giving ourselves. Yeah. And we are exporting it. If you look at Thailand with oh, the yeah. terrible shooting in the preschool, yep. you know, these are things that only came from America. There's no way anyone learned to do this any right. other way. Yeah. My daughter-in-law, as you know, is Canadian, and uh, her mom and dad have become very dear friends of ours. And uh, I think I can sum it up in in uh, just one word. You know why why it's different here to there. They're just sensible people. Mm. You know, sensible, mm-hmm. and that's all we're asking for. Just mm-hmm. some sensible regulation. That's all. Yeah, nothing more, nothing less. But uh, you know, everything is political now, so. Shall, shall we? Um, yeah, let's. Uh, this is a good conversation, very interesting, sure. and uh, gives a. I think it gives everybody something to think about, and that's what a good story will do. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll all be back next week, and Joe will be with us next week because we're going to start the solstice series, three stories on on holidays, and uh, we're going to work some of Joe's music in. At the end of those stories. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. 
It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>